Let's imagine here, just for a minute, that you are about to take a very important test. Let's imagine that I had you get out pencil and paper, and there's a, you're going to be given a test, and it's somehow you have to get the answers correct on this test. It'll make a huge difference in your life one way or the other. Maybe your house depends on it. Your job depends on it. Something big. And I tell you, okay, it's time to start. You turn over the test and you pick up your pencils. There are only three questions. The questions are these. First, why did God create this world? Second, a related question, what is the point of what God created? And the third question is about you. Why do you exist? Could you answer those questions? What would you write down? How many of you think, I didn't like my house much anyway, right? What would you say? You know, I would answer those questions. Question number one, why did God create the world? Is that its most basic level? You know why God created our universe? Because he wanted to. Second question, what is the point of what God created? Why did God create what he created. Why did he want to? Well, God created this world of ours, the universe, simply to demonstrate his magnificence, his glory. Everything was created for God's glory, to show that he was powerful, then to show he was merciful and loving and gracious. Everything was created for God's glory. Now the third question. Why do you exist? Why do I exist? Well, if my answers to the first two questions are correct, God created everything ultimately to glorify Him, to point to Him, to show something about Him. If you and I are a part of what He created then that must be our purpose as well. We were created to glorify God. God is the point of our lives. I believe those things to be true, and I think it's important that we remind ourselves of the answers to those questions periodically, because If we don't, if I don't keep reminding myself, Maxwell, the reason you exist is to glorify God. He is the point. If I don't remind myself of that from time to time, I will start living as if I am the point. I will start living 
as if the most important thing, the purpose of my life is to collect what brings me glory, what makes me comfortable, what is fun for me. And it's not that God doesn't want me to have joy. It's just that real joy only comes when I realize God is the point. When I give myself over to what glorifies Him. Today in the book of Matthew, we start a new section. All of the discourse is over. And now this, this really is the beginning of the very end. The rest of the events that happen in the book of Matthew unfold very, very quickly. And today we are going to meet two people. I believe we meet the first two people in the Gospels who understand that Jesus is actually going to die. And by the response we see them have to that realization, we can tell they have differing answers to those questions I just asked. We're going to see one person. Her name is Mary of Bethany. She knows Jesus Christ is the point. What glorifies God is what she wants to pour her life out into. And we're going to meet another person named Judas Iscariot. Ever heard of him? And I want to sort of argue, submit to you today, one main reason why Judas did what he did is because he missed the point. Judas thought Judas was the point. And that led him to betray his friend. Let's read our passage today. Matthew chapter 26, verses 1 through 16. This is the New American Standard Bible on the screen. It reads this way. When Jesus had finished all these words at the Olivet Discourse... He said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man is to be handed over for crucifixion. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas, and they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise a riot might occur among the people. Verse 6. Now, when Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume, and she poured it on Jesus' head as he reclined at the table. But the disciples were indignant when they saw this and said, Why this waste? For this perfume might have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you bother the woman? For she has done a good deed to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. For when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken in memory of her. Then one of the twelve named Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, what are you willing to give me to betray him to you? 
And they weighed out 30 pieces of silver to him. And from then on, he began, began looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. We start verses 1 through 5 of chapter 26 is the setup for the, the two main parts of the story. And in these verses, especially verses 2 through 5, we see a good, a good example of what happens when God's plans and man's plans are different. We know by this point in the story, because Jesus has been predicting it, that Jesus is going to die on a cross. In verse 2, we learn another little snippet of God's plan for Jesus to die. It's very, very soon. You know that after two days, the Passover's coming. That's when I'm going to be crucified. God has already decided that Jesus is going to be the true Passover lamb. We sang this morning, worthy is the lamb. Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's the true Passover lamb. That needs maybe a little bit of explanation for some of us. Passover was and is the biggest day of remembrance in Judaism, the historical religion of Israel. And what is remembered at Passover is that God saved Israel out of slavery in Egypt and took them to the promised land. And, it, and it's called Passover because the 10th the plague of the Exodus, God said this, because Pharaoh, king of Egypt, wouldn't let Israel go. God said, you won't let my special son out of slavery. I'm going to kill your special son. And God promised that he was going to cause the death of all the firstborn children who lived in Israel. It doesn't matter what nationality, what, what race, what anything. All the firstborn children of every family are going to die unless. God said, here's the exception I will make. If you take a, a spotless lamb and sacrifice that animal and take some of its blood and, and put it around the doorpost of your house, then when the angel of death floats through Egypt, that angel will pass over any house that has applied the blood of the lamb. That's what Passover is remembering. God passed over. He didn't, he didn't pour his wrath out on us because of the blood of the lamb. Jesus is the true Passover lamb. It's like after he went to the cross, those of us who, who believe, who trust that Jesus' punishment takes the place of my punishment, it's like his blood gets placed over the doorpost of our souls. And there's no more wrath for those of us who have the blood of Jesus over our souls. The wrath of God passes over us, not because we're good, not because we're moral, because we've got the blood of the spotless lamb over at the doorpost of our hearts. That's why Jesus, God wants to make that as plain as possible. So he says, verse 2, Jesus is going to die in Passover. That's God's plan, right? But God's not the only one planning during this week. Because in verses 3 through 5, 
the, the religious leaders of Israel have gathered, and they're meeting at Caiaphas's house, and they've got plans of their own, and they agree with God part way. They want to kill Jesus too. God, you want him dead? We want him dead too. But do you see the difference? They said, they said, we want to arrest him by stealth secretly and kill him. But they said, not during the feast. During Passover, that festival, the feast, Jerusalem swelled to, to many times its normal size. There's too many people. It's too public. He's too popular. So let's not kill him during Passover because people might riot. There's a lot of Galileans who still love Jesus. So we're not going to kill him during the Passover. So God says he's dying during Passover. Man says he's not dying during Passover. When God's plans differ from man's plans, whose plans win? God's. And so God demonstrates his unique ability to get his plans accomplished using people who don't even want to play along. Now, from a human perspective, purely human perspective, put yourself in the chief priest's shoes, or the, 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 the religious leaders, their shoes. What would need to happen to change your mind? If you don't want to kill Jesus during the festival because it's too public, there's too many people, what would need to change, what would need to happen for you to change your mind and say, okay, yeah, we can do it now. You know what you would need? You would need a man on the inside. You would need a rat. You would need somebody close to Jesus who could tell you when he is in a place by himself, isolated, nobody around, no witnesses, so that you could, even during the Passover, take him secretly where no one could see. Enter Judas Iscariot. So here's why that's the setup. Matthew has just let us know, given us the need for a betrayer. And he's going to tell us the story of that betrayer. The next thing really that happens chronologically is the story of Judas. But Matthew takes a time out and he's going to insert another story before he tells us about the betrayer Judas Iscariot. It's been a long time since I mentioned this, but Matthew doesn't tell his story completely chronologically like purely chronologically. This is an example of that. The story we're about to read about Jesus' anointing at the meal, we know didn't happen probably on Wednesday is where we're at of this Jesus' last week. It happened before the triumphal entry. It happened before Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the donkey. But Matthew does a flashback here because he wants to contrast the woman who anoints Jesus with Judas Iscariot. There's something we're supposed to learn about the two responses. So Matthew flashes back, and he's told us there needs to be a betrayer, but before I tell you that story, I want to tell you this one. Jesus, while he was in Bethany, Saturday evening, the week before our current story. Jesus was in Bethany at the house of a guy named Simon the leper. It's the only place Simon the leper shows up 
is in this story that's told in multiple Gospels. We don't know anything about him. My assumption is, is he's Simon that used to be leper, and he's been healed. My guess is Jesus healed him, but I don't know that. But he was a wealthy man who could afford a formal dinner for Jesus and lots of guests. And we also know from the other Gospels that Jesus' friend Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead, he was at this meal. And Lazarus' two sisters, Mary and Martha, were at this meal. Now, I'm going to tell you that Mary is the one who does this anointing, even though Matthew doesn't tell us that. We have to learn that from the other Gospels. Mary is an interesting gal. She shows up mainly just in three episodes told throughout the Gospels. And every time she shows up, she winds up at the feet of Jesus. One time just sitting and listening to Jesus. One time she falls down mourning, crying. And here we know she not only anointed Jesus' head, she also washed Jesus' feet. And there would have been plenty of perfumed oil to pull this off. She always winds up at Jesus' feet. And if you spend enough time at the feet of Jesus, well, that'll change a person. And Math, or excuse me, Mary is different. She's even different from the other Jesus followers. When you spend enough time with Jesus that you decide, I'm going to go all in toward what glorifies God, no matter what it means for me, you'll be misunderstood. You'll meet scorn and rejection. You might even meet that from inside the church. And that's Mary's story that Matthew inserts. He leaves her anonymous, and I'll take a guess at the end of our time as to why he leaves Mary anonymous. Not that Matthew didn't know who this was. So here's the story. They're in this meal, a formal meal. They would have been reclining at the table, the table in the middle of these couches or benches that they laid on. And Mary walks in with a jar of perfumed oil. And we're told several different ways in the Gospels that this was an extremely expensive jug of perfumed oil. We read here in this version the word expensive, but uh, that's more of an insert than, than a translation. Here's how Matthew tells us this was expensive. This, this jar was an alabaster jar. Alabaster jars, these are jars carved out of alabaster stone. They were expensive by themselves, just the jar. Nobody stored their sour milk in an, in an alabaster jar, okay? You didn't change the oil in the, you know, in the car back then at all, but if you did, you wouldn't put your used oil in the alabaster jar. Matthew, excuse me, Mark and John tell us the value of this jar perfumed oil. They say it was worth approximately an, an, the annual salary of the average laborer. So if we can do math the way we did a couple of weeks ago, this jar, by in our economic way of thinking, this was about a $57,000 jar of perfumed oil. That's a lot of money. And she walks in with 60 grand worth of perfume and she opens that vial, that jar, 
and she just slathers it all over Jesus. Matthew wants to let us make sure that we know that she poured it first on his head. Matthew, one of the main themes of his book is that Jesus is the what? He's the king, the Christ. Kings, before they're crowned, often get anointed with oil. This is Jesus' anointing. He won't have a coronation on this trip. He'll have a crucifixion. But that's what she does. 60 grand worth of oil. There'd have been plenty enough to cover his whole body with this stuff. In fact, he'll say in a minute, she poured this on my body, not just my head. Now the disciples are watching. They're eating with Jesus. And they respond. Again, when a person spends a lot of time at the feet of Jesus and decides to go all in toward what glorifies him, it makes a person different, and that leads to people being misunderstood. The disciples see what Mary has done, and we're told they became indignant. Indignance is anger at a perceived wrong. They think they have been wronged somehow, and they're angry about it. And they try to couch their anger in piety. They pull the the stewardship card here. They say, what a waste. We could have found much better uses for 60 grand worth of perfumed oil than just dumping it all out at one shot. They call it a waste. It's really easy to see why. This was way more perfumed oil than any one person would need to use at any one time for anything. You ever known anybody that never quite figured out how much cologne to wear? You ever know that guy? I used to teach junior high. And let me tell you, uh, when I was teaching junior high, they invented something called Axe Body Spray. And junior high boys would come in my room after P.E., And it smelled like they bought that stuff in a 55-gallon drum. Like, ease up on the trigger there, fella. We get it already. Now, Jesus would have smelled like that times a thousand. This is way more than anyone would need. And they say, "We we could have sold that. I won't do it now, but we can show evidence that Jesus was supported financially by wealthy families. Lazarus, Mary, Martha, they were one of them. The disciples are saying, we could have been in charge of what to do with that 60,000 bucks. Think of the poor that we could have helped out. Now, Judas, John tells us Judas was leading this protest. John tells us this, John 12, 6. Now, Judas was saying this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as keeper of the money box, he used to steal what was put into it, but the disciples didn't know that at the time. But don't let the rest of the disciples off the hook too far, because they all agreed This was a waste. 
That's the disciples' response. Now, Jesus, in verses 10 through 13, Jesus responds to this protest by the disciples. He's going to rebuke their protest. And, and whatever Jesus says, please don't read this as any kind of excuse for not being good to the poor or generous to the poor. Jesus says, why are you bothering this woman? She's going to done, done a good service for me. Verse 11, you're always going to have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. This is not Jesus. He doesn't rebuke them for wanting to help the poor. That's not really their main motivation, probably. They just want to be in charge of it. Jesus is quoting from Deuteronomy, and I just want to show you that, that whole verse. Deuteronomy 15, 11. There will never cease to be some poor people in the land. Therefore, I'm commanding you, make sure you are open-handed toward your brothers who are needy and poor in your land. That's what Jesus quotes from. So Jesus does not uh, rebuke the disciples for wanting to be kind to the poor. Jesus rebukes the disciples for continuing to not get it for continuing to be thick-headed about what's going on. They don't understand. You're always going to have the poor. I want you to take care of the poor, but you guys are missing out on a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. You guys are missing out, actually, on a once-forever opportunity. These are the only people who would ever live who would have the chance to encourage the Lord Jesus on his way to the cross, to sort of lock arms with him and encourage him and say, you, you know, you can do this, buddy. Thank you ahead of time for what you're going to do. And they miss it. They miss it in that room. They fall asleep when he asks them to pray. They run away when the soldiers come. And then the one gal who actually gets it, they rebuke her for doing what they all should have wanted had they really understood. Mary, this woman who spent so much time at the feet of Jesus, is the only one who doesn't miss it. So Jesus says, why are you guys picking on her? She has done a, this, this word could be translated beautiful. She's done a beautiful work for me. This isn't a waste. This is appropriate. If you guys understood what was coming, if you've been paying attention, you'd be more like her. He explains what he means in verse 12 when Jesus says something that this is fascinating to me. When she poured this oil on my body, my whole body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Now here's why that's interesting. Under normal circumstances, when our body's prepared for burial, we usually wait until people are, I don't know, dead, right? Jesus says, this is a beautiful thing for me. Well, listen, if you wake up some night and someone is preparing your body for burial, they're not doing you a favor, right? Get out of there. There's horror movies made about stuff like that. But Jesus says, she's doing something beautiful for me. She's preparing. He tells this 
as if Mary really understands. The light bulb has gone off, has gone on for Mary. She's still, Jesus is going to die. And she knows he's going to die to the glory of God. And so she goes and finds the most valuable thing. She, how can I encourage and minister to and love on the Lord Jesus? 60 grand worth of oil. And I'm just going to spend it all on you because you're worth it. It is beautiful. But even if Mary knew that Jesus was going to die, why didn't she wait? until after he was dead to prepare his body for burial. Maybe it's because she didn't just believe Jesus when he predicted his death. What else had Jesus been predicting? His resurrection. Maybe Mary thought, if I'm going to get his body ready for burial, I better act quickly. Because once he dies, he ain't going to stay dead. And it's possible that I'm reading too much into Mary's understanding, but if anyone was equipped to believe in the resurrection before it happened, it would have been Mary. You know why? Because this was not the first time she wasted perfumes and spices preparing a body for burial when the body didn't stay dead. What was her brother's name? Lazarus. She stood there and watched Jesus raise her brother from the dead. He was all wrapped up in linen, which would have had the same kind of stuff slathered all over it. Verse 13, Jesus makes a couple of predictions, both of which have come true. He tells the disciples, I'll tell you what, boys, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, has that been happening? Jesus assumes The good news of his life and death is going to be told all over the world. Has that been happening for the last 2,000 years? Yes. When it's told, Jesus says, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Has that been happening for 2,000 years all over the world? Yes. Here we are halfway around the world and 2,000 years later, and we're doing it right now. Mary somehow understands God's plans what will glorify God. She understands Jesus is the point and she pours out her all toward the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now Matthew takes us back to our regularly scheduled program. Remember, in verses 1 through 5, he set us up for a need of a betrayer Verses 14, 15, and 16, here he comes. Then one of the twelve, one of Jesus' closest friends, the one named Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and he said, what will you give me to betray him into your hands? And so they set out 30 silver coins for him. And from that time on, Judas began looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus. I think Judas had had the light bulb go off in his head too. And I think the story Matthew just told us had something to do with it. Judas came to the point where he understood, wait a minute. He's actually going to let them kill him. He's really acting like he's only got two days left 
to live. And it makes perfect sense. Last Saturday, when we were in that meal, that woman, she came and she wasted $60,000 worth of perfumed oil on him. And he, he acted like it was appropriate. He rebuked me for calling it a waste. It starts to click with Judas. Wait a minute. Like, I didn't sign up for this. You know why Judas followed Jesus? Judas followed Jesus because he thought following Jesus would help Judas, would benefit Judas in ways Judas had always wanted to be benefited. He wanted what most of us want our whole lives. He wants position. He wants power. He wants financial benefits. And it worked for a while. When he sees Jesus accept the wasting of $60,000 and he hears Jesus say, boys, 48 hours, they're going to kill me. It's going to get scary. You're all going to run away. Judas is like, check, please. I'm out. I did not sign up for this. As soon as Judas comes to the realization, following Jesus won't benefit me in ways I've always wanted to get benefited, he just goes to plan B, which is this. Maybe betraying Jesus will get me what I, the benefits I've always wanted. That's what he does. Jesus wastes 60,000 bucks. Maybe I can make a few bucks by selling them out. And from a human perspective, that's why Judas does what Judas does. And I do believe these are the first two people to really understand, holy smokes, he's about to die. This isn't a parable. These aren't symbols. This is real. And then Matthew shows us the two responses, the two major responses to following Jesus through suffering and death hardship. You know, it is, it is silly to think we can follow a God who is humiliated, mocked, beaten, spat upon, scorned, and murdered, and think somehow following him will make me like popular and rich and prosperous and healthy. It's kind of silly, but we do it all the time. We do it all the time. How how can I do what God wants so that he will give me what I want right here, right now? That's Judas's mistake. And once we get disillusioned, like, man, following God doesn't seem to work. I'm not going to get what I want to get. It's pretty easy to check out and try other means to get what I've always wanted. Mary of Bethany is our example. She saw clearly the same pain and suffering and death that Judas saw coming, but her response was completely different. If that's where you are going, how can I come along? 
How can I be involved? How can I pour all of me into what glorifies God the most? And I don't care if the rest of the people in this room think I'm an idiot. They will understand one day that that's what they should have been doing all along. So I'm just going to keep my eyes on Jesus. I'll ask you the easiest question I've asked you in a long time. Way easier than the ones I asked you in the introduction, I promise. If you could go back in time and insert yourself in this story, who would you rather be, Judas or Mary? Wouldn't you love, wouldn't you love to be the only one who saw it clearly? The only one who encouraged the Lord, who poured out her life for the Lord. Just wouldn't you want to love to be the one who just slathered the 60,000 bucks worth of oil all over him just as a way to show this is what you're worth. This is what you mean to me. I'm going to pour all of me out toward what glorifies you. Wouldn't you love to be that person? You know why Matthew left Mary anonymous? I can't be for sure, but here's what I think. He didn't want this to be a story just about Mary of Bethany. He knows you and I, this can be our story. We, we can't go back in time before the cross and who would want to. But what we can do is be the kind of person who knows that Jesus Christ is the point who is willing to pour out my time, my effort, my passion, my resources for him. And will that lead to me being misunderstood and rejected and scorned? Absolutely, but who cares? Someday everyone will know he is the point. I think Matthew just makes this a a story about a faceless, a nameless face in the crowd. that you and I might decide to make this our story or make our story more like hers and less like someone who is figuring out how to use God to get what they always wanted. Is that a tough life? Is that a difficult life? You bet your life. But last thing, in this story, when, when Mary, to the scorn of everyone else, poured out her her highest value on Jesus and everybody attacked her for it. Who stuck up for Mary? The Lord Jesus. Why are you picking on my girl? Don't you know Jesus still sees and cares and does exactly that? He may not step in and save the day, but he sees every time those who love him pour themselves out for him regardless of what everyone else says. And one day he will call their name. When the roll is called up yonder, he will be the one sticking up for those who poured themselves out for his glory because he is the point. Amen? Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the story of Mary and the contrast with Judas. We, none of us want to be like Judas. We all want to be like Mary. But it is easier to behave like Judas than we, than we allow ourselves to believe. 
God, show us how to pour ourselves out, to come with the alabaster jar of our hearts and to pour them out for what glorifies you, for you are the point. We were created to glorify you. Help us to encourage one another when the rest of the world holds us in contempt. We love you, Lord. Receive our, this last offering from our hearts as we sing to you. We thank you for your grace. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.